You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, you were just at Data Science Africa and Adidas Ababa. How was it? How did it go? I'm so excited to hear everything. It was really good. Um, I get it's the sixth Data Science Africa. The first one was 2015, and there's currently two of these meetings a year. Now, is that is that new for this year, the two meetings a year? Or did when did that start? That started for the first time last year. So um, there's a sort of backstory to that, uh, where we had um, Charles Saidu came to the Tanzanian edition and said we should be doing this in West Africa as well. And, and of course, our answer was, yes, and you should do it. <laughs> so Charles uh, managed the first data science Africa in sort of West Africa, so in Nigeria, in Abuja, which is the capital, last, uh, I think, November. Then this year, there's another event in Ghana where the workshops will be held at the new Google AI lab in Accra. So that's quite exciting. And yes, so that's the second year we've been doing that. And actually, there was pushing for a Southern African version this year, which is would be really cool. But of course, it's, it's how, how you scale is a really interesting question and, and make sure that there's sufficient because it's, it's quite a load on people to organize and do the program and everything else. Organizing a conference is a huge undertaking, Neil. Is that what you're saying to me? That sounds like, I don't know. Well, actually, one of the things I find, someone was asking me what I sort of, um, a cycling friend was explaining they had a friend that um, was doing something in Africa, which was, I think, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, but let's say it was like giving away bicycles. And I was like, I, I just don't think that's a good thing because I think, you know, people have businesses selling bicycle. And if, you, if you're giving away bicycles, you're undermining the local economy somehow. And I think there's potential problems around the giving away clothes and everything else in that space. But because you end up with these things that are ways of making money for people and the markets get distorted by donations. And they were like, so what's different about what you're doing then? You know, you're just giving away confidence or something. I don't know. Which is a question that you're... <laughs> you're undercutting university professors by like getting in their economy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really valid question, right? And it's, I mean, I'm in some extent, I'm not really doing anything now. That's the, my favorite bit about it. But I was trying to think about um, what what was the role. And I think the main role for me was just helping mentor people through how to organize a workshop and a conference. So not even the stuff I would have taught in the first one and even did teach would have been the wrong stuff. I learned much more from watching African-based lecturers teach about what the right things to teach were. So I think that the my only contribution to it is really mentoring people and reassuring them in, in how to organize. And I feel that's sort of done and there's, there's not... The meeting is now, um, it's nearly formed its own NGO. I think there were some paperwork issues, but the, there's an NGO in incorporated in Nairobi with um, only African researchers on the executive board. So I, there's like an advisory board and I'm on that, but it's it's all run by um, the African-based researchers like uh, Shira and Dina and Ernest and Martin Billy O'Carl, who's, who's actually currently not based in Africa, but is Kenyan in origin and has been to all the meetings. That the thing I I think it happened really in Abuja, not this most recent one particularly. It was absolutely definitely there, but in the Abuja meeting, it, it was so good because I realized oh there's absolutely you know no need for me to be here in terms of 
like I could just go away now. That's like my favorite thing. The joy of redundancy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, leave one out estimation. Leave me out and this is fine. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Awesome. So it really uh cuz actually I was coming back I was reading you know the white savior stuff. Have you seen that? Um it's uh something that hit Twitter particularly in the UK because there's this it it certainly resonates with me as a sort of real danger and I worry that even like by talking about it now I'm kind of feel that you're doing that it's a little bit awkward in that sense but also you're trying to sort of bring the profile to the good work people are doing there so of course and we're going to exactly do that with with some interviews from the attendees and the organizers and 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 hear about their experience but I think the value added it really has been around and I, I I hope I think that's done the thing that I was so excited about this meeting as well as hearing talks from people who have been students at previous meetings so a lot of the a lot of the lectures in the summer school are now given by um like Ben Akera who we'll hear from who was a student in Tanzania and is now teaching multiple courses on the school and is only just graduating undergraduate and has been offered a, an internship at Mila you know that, that to me is is fantastic. One of the things that uh, I suppose it is obvious in retrospect, but I hadn't quite understood the depth of the issue is, and this came through a lot in Addis Ababa, because there were a lot of very interesting um, minority languages in Ethiopia. It was a country that was never colonized. So the, the main language is Amharic. And then there are minority languages. There's a different script. So, uh, for example, uh, Michael Malese is supervised during his PhD by academics outside Ethiopia, and there's a lot of connections with academics outside Ethiopia. So there's quite a lot of connections between um, students in Addis Ababa and places in, say, the United States or Europe, but less connections between Addis Ababa and other African universities. And this is true in general, and it sort of makes sense. In fact, I'll give you an analogy on it, and it came up again in our discussions. One of the one of the things we were talking about was ICLR being there, and uh, Charles Sedu actually mentioned that you know one challenge is it's actually more expensive for him uh, to fly to Addis Ababa than it might be to fly to London, uh, and people's reaction is, oh, you know, that's terrible. You know, it should be, but of course, it's because the flights between it's a hub and spoke effect. That there's many flights. I mean, actually, Addis is the hub for Africa, so it's a good place in that sense. So it's probably not a great example. But most flights are going out towards London or other sort of European or American cities. And, and the, you know, the network is less hubbed. If it's hubbed around anywhere, it is hubbed around Addis Ababa. Because Ethiopian Airways is a sort of big African airline. And they're very proud of them in Ethiopia. That their sort of planes were in bars and all sorts of models of their planes, not the whole plane. That would have been great. That would have been even better. So... Uh, The same, I think, in academia, that uh, there's a tendency to find collaborators in maybe European or North American countries. And so you form these relationships that are going abroad rather than sort of mapping back. And what's really happened in DSA is we've started to see a lot of relationships forming between neighboring uh, African countries. And that's particularly important, I feel, because the sort of problem sets people are experiencing both in their work lives and in terms of just doing the job of being an academic in um, the African continent and in terms of the sort of applications that they're facing have a lot of commonalities. I mean, of course, there's, and there's many differences too. And again, you know, that'll come out in the, the interview with Michael and Charles where they talk about uh, their sort of shared experiences. 
So what were you excited about around, you know, I've never been to a DSA. They sound really amazing, but but how does it go? Is it like a conference sort of setup or is it more about active learning for the people, for the participants or... So it tries to do both. And it's a model that um, actually we started with the Gaussian Process Summer School and extended there and seems to work, although it may be modified. Three days of summer school, which is targeted at sort of starts with introduction to machine learning, but also does things. We have ARM uh, at the last three or four and doing Internet of Things, sort of acquisition of data. Really cool. So they had a, for example, we did field work. Yan Yongboom and Damon Chivin came from ARM and uh, they made 100 boards specifically for the conference that targeted at um, sort of agricultural deployment. And so I think that the idea is maybe not every student, but a lot of the students will take these boards back and deploy them particularly around uh, coffee plantations. So they're going to try and build a project around monitoring of coffee because there's a sort of massive difference driven by, I mean, it's funny how the sort of effects you see on your high street, the sort of hipster coffee shops has driven this enormous difference between the sort of price of the high quality beans and the price of the whole low quality beans on say the Nairobi spot market. So actually Damon was talking about how you can actually check the Nairobi spot market price for coffee. And my understanding was that like beans on the same branch might be graded in different ways. So if you can sort of understand that and what's affecting that, um, obviously that's that's an interesting challenge. But it, less that specific challenge for me, more the sort of general idea of acquiring data from the field and, and doing the analysis and pulling it together and everything that takes is an important part of the meeting. And we try and teach that in the first three days. And as I've said many times, that's actually where I learn an enormous amount because it's sort of like trying to put in this the infrastructure around data. Um, you learn where all the gaps are and where the things we're not thinking about really are. So that's actually where I'm getting so much benefit from going is understanding those sort of gaps as you're going what we call end to end. So from the field to the ministry. So three days of teaching around that. Um, and we also have lectures around um, visualization, which was given by Elaine and so easy this time, you know, also covering things like we go as far as looking briefly at things like deep reinforcement learning, these techniques, everyone's very excited about those techniques. And I guess that's a draw for people, but there's a lot more focus on the pragmatic challenges of, of data. And certainly, I think if you look at my work, you'll see how that's influenced me a great deal in terms of papers that I've written, not for Europe's, but more targeting that sort of area. And then we have a two-day workshop, and the workshop is more sort of presenting um, other people will come in. So we had this time, as we had in Abuja, and I think he's one of the best speakers on data I've seen, Victor Horugu, who is, he works for the, so the Sustainable Development Goals, which I think there's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, Victor works on the sort of data for the Sustainable Development Goals. And the Sustainable Development Goals are often a theme for us, and UN Global Pulse uh, were there. So uh, we heard from Paula Hidalgo Silvas, who heads UN Global Pulse in Kampala. And uh, she mentions always the sustainable development goals, but the Victor's team is about the sort of making the data available to achieve them. And I, I've said it twice now, because every time I hear Victor speak, uh, he's, he's Nigeria based. He is, I think, the person with one of the deepest understandings around the complexities of data ecosystems that I've ever heard speak. 
because he has to go from the sort of um, bringing the data together from source, making it available, negotiating with governments about how to make this sort of political side to the security side of creating sort of safe data havens and opening them up to certain countries. So there's a number of countries that can access the platform and they're doing deals for that. I swear I've not heard anyone speak uh, as eloquently and as sophisticatedly about this type of arena. And it's a side effect of this sort of challenge that the data is there, The or his organization is the organization that's pulling it together, and they're having to do everything. Right. So if you have to, if you have to do everything, you start getting a picture of the complexities and the subtleties. And what goes on in developed economies is that there's there's lots of entities there already involved. But in particular now, those entities are evolved for the wrong reasons and have the wrong priorities very often because they evolved in an era before data and now this data's come. So you can see, and of course it can go the wrong way, it could go the wrong way as well. And that was a big discussion in our panel meeting is uh, where, which was focused on the ethics and we had Tim Kebru and uh, Ernest Mboise and uh, Paula and John Quinn talking about that is, uh, you know, where you have this sort of emerging economy Perhaps the very best and the very worst could happen. So how do you steer things to ethical use of data rather than exploitative use of data? So from that perspective, to me, that the meeting ends up having everything. You're not going to hear the most sophisticated talks on the latest version of a GAN, right? That's not what the meeting's about. But I think you hear far more about how you get these methods working in practice. And that's what I, I really enjoy about it. That's fantastic. Well, we will have more about Data Science Africa and the upcoming meeting for Data Science Africa, which is later on in this year, on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines is kind of a question that we put out and got turned back on us. So I'm at ICML right now, Neil, as of this recording, and we asked people what they were seeing that they were excited about at ICML, and we got a listener asking us back what we were excited about to see at ICML. Now, Neil, full disclosure, through the magic of radio, you are not here right now. I know. And you are there. And I am here. And I am here. It's still, it's magical. It's magical. So, so I need to ask you. Oh, okay. Tell me, what are you finding exciting at uh, ICML? Yeah. So this year's conference is awesome, as ICML usually is. It is uh, bigger than it was last year. So we're sort of continuing our speedy growth rate in terms of attendance. I think there are about 6,000 people here this year. And I think in Stockholm, there were a little over 5,000. But uh, I don't have the numbers directly in front of me. But we are continuing to see more and more, more and more people attend ICML, which is the same trend that we've seen in, in NeurIPS and at iClear. And I am particularly excited about the workshops this year. I think there's some really cool stuff going on. And right now, we are taping before the workshops have occurred. So maybe we can talk more about what actually came out of them later. But there's um, there's a workshop on climate change that I am really excited to attend because I feel like there will be some really interesting thinking about applications for larger problems and maybe thinking about this this uh, area of quote-unquote AI for good that people are really excited about, but in a really actionable way. So I'm, I'm super excited to, to check out that workshop. So the, the, the thing that always worries me about AI for good is it implies that the rest of AI is kind of... For bad. I mean, what does it say? It's like, well, no, no, I'm mainly focusing on AI for evil at the moment. Uh, <laughs> Oh, 
I'm thinking uh, maybe I'll shift to AI for good after some period. AI for world domination. So, yeah, you know. After my world domination, so there's this sort of like AI for good, AI for social good. I always, I haven't, I haven't been to one yet, but I'm a bit nervous, like that it implies that what I'm doing at the moment is AI for evil. But I, it is, it is a, a, a great movement, and. Have you sort of, is there anyone you picked out in particular who's talking there or? or? Absolutely. So this workshop has a lot of big names like Yasho Benjo is coming to speak. Andrew Ng is coming to speak. But I'm particularly interested. Are you sure you're not reading the deep learning I know, workshop? I know, I right? know. Are you sure you're not reading the list of like five other workshops, right? Like there are some usual <laughs> suspects happening here. Um, yeah. But there is a speaker who I haven't heard before. I think he's a subject matter expert, but it will, I will have to check it out more. Jack Kelly from an organization called Open Climate Fix. Um, and I've, I know Jack Kelly. Oh, yes. you know Jack Kelly. So tell me, should I be as excited to, to see him as I think I am? You should be excited. Very weird connection with Jack Kelly. Jack Kelly is the son-in-law of the angel investor in my startup where we uh, sold the IP and uh, moved to Amazon. Yeah, so weird connection. So Jack, and I knew of Jack before. I think he was at DeepMind for a period. He's been interested in climate. He's uh, written a lot of APIs around climate. And he's been active in this space, I don't know, for five or six years. I think he was in neuroscience before that. But yes, and uh, he was at DeepMind for a period and he's uh, left and uh, started this thing. And uh, yes, so I haven't actually seen him speak on it, but he's someone who's been in this space for a while. And I've spoken to about where interesting places are to work. And I haven't heard what he's been up to very recently. So I'm quite jealous that uh, you're going to be there. Well, you can also, this is one of the workshops. There are a large number of workshops that are streaming and broadcasting the stuff that they are presenting. So you will you will actually be able to see it, Neil, if you want. You could go on their website and see what they're doing. I'm going to I'm going to do that. So now there's no excuse. Yes. I'm going to I'm going to stream across the night. Climate change the, are the other social good workshops or is that the sort of main one? Um there are definitely a bunch of other social good workshops, but I am that is the one that feels sort of most pointed for me at the moment. So that's the one that I'm sort of most excited to to jump on. And how were the poster sessions this year? Did they, uh, were they a bit? Yeah, the poster sessions were actually great. They felt to me a little bit more navigable than they have been in past years. And I guess it's kind of hard to put my finger on why that was. Maybe it was simply the layout of the space, but it felt like there were... Were the posters up for longer? Because that's something. Yeah, the posters for. were up in the evenings from, I believe, about 6.30 to 9 local time. You could get in a, a little bit earlier because there was sort of a, a little reception and then people would go into the posters. But yes, there was definitely enough time to have a good wander, figure out which ones you wanted to spend more time with, and then go back to those. And this year, I believe we had three nights of posters, but that were presenting, of course, individual content. Tuesday was not the same as Wednesday as Thursday, right? So so maybe there were um, not as much time as you would want to be able to spend with an individual poster if you didn't get enough time on that night, but I felt like it was more navigable. And maybe that was just the way that the space was laid out. Uh, it was an interesting direction to see things go in. But also, so there's this really interesting website called postersessions.ai, where they are essentially scraping all the posters and putting them up on this website. So it's it's kind of a digital poster session. No, that's that's very good. 
Yeah, actually, that, that reminds me this year. I don't know if it's just been me, but on Twitter and thereabouts, I've seen a number of little videos and hints and tricks for trying to change the way people are doing posters. So to trying to reimagine what a poster session is like from the perspective of the attendee and how to write a poster such that it can be approached. So from a distance, you can sort of see the main point. And I think there was a particular idea where actually it, it's just a main point and a sort of QR code. And we'll find the link for the video. But this little video was about uh, the experience of posters where you sort of go into the poster session. Imagine you're going to be telling everyone how amazing your poster is. But actually, no one really comes to it. Now, I think that isn't really the experience in Europe now, but it certainly used to be 20 years ago. There's something about the dynamics of the size, the number of people, the number of posters that means that most posters have people at them most of the time. But I was I was curious if if you'd seen any change in the because one sort of approach is almost to write a sort of simplified version of the paper and sort of lay it all out. Was that the main type of poster, or were you starting to see things where the titles or the summary is a bit clearer from a distance or anything like that? Yes, I have seen some really interesting things that people are doing with the layout of their posters to make it more consumable because it is. It's never so clear as to who put the time into thinking how this information was going to be consumed and who the audience was that was consuming it than when you actually get into the poster session and you can easily see the posters. So one poster that I saw that was very grabbing, they created a one-sentence sort of declaration from their abstract that was printed huge in the middle of the poster. And then they had QR codes, not only for their archive paper, but for all of their author team. And it took up the entire space of the board. So you could very easily identify it from wherever you were in the room. You had this one sort of takeaway piece of information. And then they were clearly, you know, asking you to do the work to go and actually read the paper because you know, I mean, in the poster session, it's kind of hard to hear people. There's lots of things crowded around. The likelihood that you're going to get all of the juice that you want out of that paper is is kind of actually pretty low. So I, I thought that that was like a really great approach. But also one thing that I noticed this year that I, I hadn't seen as much previously, people are printing their posters on cloth on like it feels like they look like big scarves, but it's kind of genius because you can steam your poster and then it will be really crisp and people will be able to read it instead of having to try to like lug around a poster tube and make sure that it's perfect and crisp all week until you can actually put it up. So I thought that was a really nice uh, innovation. And of course, you can use it as a towel if you forgot to bring one for the swimming pool. Absolutely. Then you can lie on top of your poster <laughs> And just, you know, get... talk about it at the pool. Yes. You can save your uh, uh, recliner. Is that yes. what you call it in America? A, a lounge chair. But a yeah, lounge no, chair. A recliner. Um, that sounds recliner, good. Recliner uh, with your poster. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Excellent. Oh, that sounds really good. So great posters, great workshops. Great posters, great workshops. Any standout talks that you saw? Or... Yeah, I've really enjoyed the talks around the best papers this year. And there there were two of them, challenging common assumptions in the unsupervised learning of disentangled representations and rates of convergence for sparse variational Gaussian process regressions. But I'm, I'm always, I'm sort of a best papers nerd and it helps, it helps me and maybe this creates bias in my own approach to the field, but it gives me sort of a sense of like, what are the big threads that there might be to pull on that are sprouting up in, in the thinking in the area. Great. And of course, I was just excited that one of them was about sparse Gaussian processes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. 
Yes, totally. Brilliant. So uh, you can find out more about the conference uh, on the website. And that website is thetalkingmachines.com. And we'll have links to the workshops where you can see those workshops that had streaming and digital resources. We'll also have links to those best papers. Our guests for this episode of Talking Machines are Michael Malese from Adidas Ababa University and Charles Saidu from Baza University in Abuja. And Neil got a chance to sit down with them at DSA. And we apologize, this audio is a little bit wonky, but we feel like the conversation was really great, so we still wanted to bring it to you. And when Neil got a chance to sit down with them, he asked them the first question that we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are? I came to this point since I started my MSSC program. And I'm also working on the same area uh, for my PhD, which I have already done. My undergraduate is in computer science, MSS in uh, information science, and my PhD is on language technology. Language technology. Now that's sort of extremely interesting here in Ethiopia because uh, there's Aramaic, which uh, is part of the Semitic languages, is the main language spoken here. Is that right? Yes. Um, so you're focused in that area? Yes. Actually, Amharic is not only the Semitic, but also one of the morphologically complex language. And there are a number of languages under the Semitic group, but the Amharic is the, uh, with the largest speaker compared to the other one, next to the Arabic, with the largest number of speakers next to uh, Arabic. Amharic is the second most spoken. And it also has a different script to uh, Arabic, right? Mm. Yes. Actually, uh, Semitic language that we have in Ethiopia, they do use a Giz script having more than uh, 376 characters. Each of them are distinct in their orthographic representations. Your, your research focus is on um, the speech side of uh, languages or on the natural language processing or on character recognition or a combination? It's a combination. Actually, I'm working on the Amharic speech to English text translation. So that's how can we make the Amharic speech to be translated to the English text using some uh, cascading components. So there are speech recognition as one component. We do have uh, machine translations and text to speech synthesizer is another one. So I'm working on those uh, three. So that's speech to speech, so the whole pipeline, so going directly from, like Babelfish, where you go directly from Aramaic all the way uh, to English, is that right? Actually, for the English, uh, it's resourced language. So for the resourced language, we do, there is nothing to invent the wheel. So I did uh, from the Amharic speech to the English text. So you can feed forward to the, right. for the English uh, speech synthesizers. So you're going from Amharic speech to, to English, English text, text, and then you take advantage of the ecosystem around speech generation for English language. So what are the particular challenges you're finding in, in that area? Actually, one of the major challenges that we have is a resource, the data resource. As we are under resource language, you can't find that much digital data, which can be used in order to translate from those under resource language to the resource um, like the foreign language, you may consider the English, the French, or any other Asian language, uh, they are much more resourced. So, so Aramaic, yeah. so under-resourced meaning there's lack of digital resources. But yes. So population of Ethiopia is how many? About 100 million? Now it's more than 100 million. 
How many of those are Aramaic speakers? Amharic speaker is more than 25 million. So 25 million speakers, yes. but still that counts as an under-resourced language because just lack of access to data, labeled data, I presume. Yes. And what sort of techniques do you use to try and get around that? Actually, specifically, I'm working on the tourism domain. So we try to make with my uh, supervisors under uh, we are going to take the uh, from the resourced language. So domain uh, is going to be adopted to the under-resourced language, uh, specifically basic traveler expression uh, domain data have been used for that purpose. And from that data, it has been translated to the under-resourced, which is Amharic, which is going to be used for both uh, Amharic speech recognition as well as Amharic takers to English takers translation using the second approach. So that you go domain specific is one of the ways of dealing with this. Yes. So by focusing more on tourism and that specific area, you can partially deal, well, you can build a corpora which is targeted at that and alleviate the lack of uh, labeled data. But so can you also um, leverage existing phonetic models in Amharic or is it too distinct in terms, certainly when I'm on the street, it sounds very distinct from other languages, but can you leverage transfer learning? At this point, it's a little bit difficult to, uh, to make a transfer learning because the language is totally different from the other language. Uh, maybe it may relate to the Arabic, but uh, uh, it's going to use a totally different orthographic representation, which is out of uh, speaker. So there is no way directly we can apply the transfer learning for, for this specific case for the speech recognitions. Not only that one, because there are a different dialect, more than hundreds of dialects is there for the Amharic. So it's difficult to, to take those things into account. So even uh, when I do my research, there is a problem of a propagation of error that comes from the automatic speech recognitions, uh, which is going to feed forward to the subsequent uh, machine translations. And I try to contribute on that part as, uh, by using the post-editing techniques. So, so um, is that end-to-end learning type techniques to try and do the training throughout the pipeline from the recognizer through the, to the translator? Yes. So what sort of software frameworks are you using for doing that? Actually, for the automatic speech recognition, I have used Kaldi. And there are also a lot of Sreeter tools. So Srilim have been used for the language modeling. And for the morphological uh, analyzer, I have used a Morpheser. And a number of tools have been used along with this for the automatic speech recognitions. In the same way, for the uh, statistical machine translation, I have used Moses. Giza, along with that uh, language modeling tool, uh, the same uh, language modeling tools really have been used in order to make the cascading compound. Of course, in order to integrate to these parts, I've used Python so as to feed forward to the uh, succeeding components, though it's going to be implemented um, in, um, using uh, Python. Just changing tack a little bit. Uh, so you've organized this fantastic, uh, well, we've just, just coming to the end of the summer school for Data Science Africa in Addis Ababa. So you've hardly been able to attend a single session because you've been running around dealing with all the things that an organizer does. But I, in the context of what you've described, you immediately understand how important it is to have domain knowledge in order to deliver on these applications. So you're not going to build good Aramaic speech recognizers unless you have some deep understanding. What's your feeling so far in terms of the different applications, different sort of students you've seen from Data Science Africa and how that feeds the 
local domain knowledge and the capabilities people are getting with data science here? This is the uh, second to organize. Uh, previously, we have organized uh, uh, in Walaita, so the university in DabaX have been organized. Next to that, uh, we came to the Data Science Africa, and uh, majority of the peoples are, are from the rural part of the uh, Ethiopia. So there are different universities. So from each of the universities, we are trying to collect people that are working on those areas. And they need to excel by exchanging the, uh, whatever the information that comes from the... Uh, so from how the many universities are there in Ethiopia in total? Rough estimate. You know? Rough estimate is more than uh, 35, the government university. That government universities, more yes. than 35 government. So we were, when we were doing the field work yesterday in the botanical gardens, which was beautiful, and we were walking there, I was speaking to several Ethiopian attendees, many of them from different universities, some only 100 kilometers away, some 750 kilometers away. Yes. And what I found interesting is many of them were meeting for the first time at this meeting, yeah? Yes. How often are meetings going on like this locally? There's been Daba X, and that's been the first one mainly in this area? Yes, it, Indaba is the first one to, uh, to take place in, in, in Ethiopia. And uh, they say the second one, but we are trying to have uh, a community on Black in AI, uh, Black community to participate in the area of artificial intelligence, uh, which is initiated by Dr. Timnit. And we are still trying to exchange all the information through that so that they, uh, we can uh, represent the, all the black peoples all over the world. So that brings us uh, to um, the sort of wider African context. And we're also lucky to have uh, with us today uh, Charles Saidu. Charles is a lecturer at Bayes University, which is in Abuja, Nigeria. And Charles organized the uh, previous Data Science Africa meeting in uh, Abuja, in Nigeria, which is a very different context. But I, I want to start, Charles, with you by asking you, uh, how did you get where you are today? Okay, so I, I have an um, undergraduate degree in computer science um, at um, Federal University of Technology, Yola. And um, I have a master's degree also in computer science with a focus on power and distributed computing. And then I started my PhD in um, African University of Science and Technology about three years ago, where I um, do research in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So that's been a journey for me. It's my research area um, in uh, machine learning is active learning. And that is... Um, uh, what, we try, what I try to do is apply active learning to um, biomedical image um, processing. And one of the issues we have that, I, that, I, that I've seen so far is the fact that, like he said, we have um, very few um, digital content. Yeah. And in, in the field of um, biomedical image processing, and we, of course, the number of doctors we have, if we're going to train machine learning models, we need experts in that domain and some of these guys are really busy the hospitals are uh, jam-packed so getting them to um, annotate the data that we would use for to build our models can be really difficult especially as they have a lot of other stuff to do so so that's that's interesting to me yeah. because immediately you're talking about so Nigeria's health ecosystem is very advanced compared to yeah. even countries uh, neighboring it I think or although um Everyone worried a great deal about the Ebola outbreak recently. Yeah. One of the great stories about the Ebola outbreak was how the health system in Nigeria was able to track Ebola cases and 
you know, when there's a well-organized information system around yeah. help, yeah. Uh, deal with those cases and prevent the outbreak from becoming significant in Nigeria. It's sort of one of the really positive stories. Yeah. The downside of that story is one of the reasons it, um, I think, spread so quickly in the countries which did have a problem, uh, mm-hmm. Liberia and Sierra Leone, is the lack of that information infrastructure. Yeah. So there's this is a significant difference yeah. in the health capability in Nigeria, but there's still yeah. a shortage of capability when it comes to data annotation. Precisely. So that's basically what we try to do. If we're going to really build good models for um, the medical domain in Nigeria, we need to get the doctors in. And um, if they're so busy attending to a lot of patients, it becomes really difficult when you get them to put these annotations on these images, MRI, X-ray images, and all of that. So the basic idea was just to um, to use um, non-techniques, but put an active learning feel into it, and such that we can actually only get these doctors to do informative uh, labeling on samples we think would better improve uh, our predictions or our regression models that we built. So that's basically the idea behind it. And also, another idea that came out from the research was, okay, so most of the data collected are kind of decentralized and they're scattered all over the place if they are there. And um, what if we want to make um, machine learning models that um, not only request for data within a local region, but also try to see if we can combine, do some sort of distributed machine learning from the data across different regions. And we think that would really improve and help the system. So that's one thing that I love about Data Science Africa is, as Michael was saying earlier, and you're intimating now, that there's this shortage of data. You actually have to actively acquire the data. Yes, yes. And you end up involved in this, in going all the way down to the health centers and working with the doctors or the image acquisition. And while that's a lot of extra work, when you see that entire pipeline of the sort of data to the decision or the data to the translation, it gives you a lot of ideas about the type of machine learning you can do. So when you're you're mentioning that, are you thinking of sort of federated learning techniques? Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, more like a federated learning technique. Yeah. You know, but uh, for now, what we're trying to do is let's start with what we have. We haven't really gone that federated yet, so we're just starting with what we have at the moment. And um, it will be interesting to know that yes, the, the the healthcare system is quite developed compared to other um, African countries, but the data are not really read, readily. Up. They are available, but they are not annotated. They just collect this data. But it's fascinating to you. Mm. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. But what's interesting, even say, if you take the UK context, yeah. if you speak to someone like Piers Keane, who uh, is at the Moorfields Hospital and uh, has got this great project in collaboration with DeepMind where they're um, doing ophthalmology on the retina, yeah. the data challenge there is massive as well. Despite the fact that they've stored a lot of data, yeah. the nature of the annotation, the way they've stored the data yeah. all turns out to be perhaps not quite appropriate for the methods that people want to use. And I think that the big advantage in the African context you have is you actually get to potentially, and I am curious if you're doing this, insert the device. So Mm -hmm. if if the data is now being collected on a mobile phone, then you have more control of that platform than you would do. You don't get to go into a UK hospital and replace the retina scanning image with a cheap Android phone. No. (laughs) Yeah. But here, that's the sort of thing you can do, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. Sure, sure. It's interesting 
the um, from from my experience, like well, at the moment in Nigeria, we have tons of people who are interested in AI machine learning. Young adults, they want to explore the field. They they love it. You know, what, what we have on ground is data already annotated and pre-processed. Okay. So if you have to go into the field and, and do this end-to-end, acquire the data, clean it up, and, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And people just sort of put that aside and assume, okay, well, we can, we have data, you know. And the data we generate in Africa are contextual to African people. So it is high time we have uh, schemes that sort of reduces this effort yeah. in getting the data and uh, annotating the data for use within the African context. And that's basically the idea. One of the talks we had at DSA workshop was um, uh, from Teju and the AI Saturdays yeah. team in uh, Lagos. And they have this great project, which uh, they, they chose a project to work on on Saturday. This is a group that meets, yeah. it meets every Saturday and talks about AI. And the project they chose was um, building uh, sort of image recognizers for food, right? For food, and I guess mainly Nigerian food because Nigerian food is very different from, yeah, I guess Ghanaian food and everywhere else. Yeah, that, yeah. Now that you mentioned it, uh, so uh, I also belong to that group, yeah. part of the um, organizers for AI Saturdays for the Abuja version of, yeah. of the AI. So um, and it's fascinating. Like I said, I said a lot of people want to do AI, want to do machine learning, and. People without any formal degree in computer science or even degree at all, with just basic um, secondary school education or undergraduate student. Yes, you know, these are the kind of people we have. So in- where are they getting their knowledge from? How are they learning to do this? Though? Google is your friend. Google is your friend. <laughs> yeah. So there are lots of videos, people, you know, and then when they get confused, that's the basic idea behind the AI Saturdays. Okay, so the, the, when they get confused, we all come together as a community and try to um, address some of the challenges that people have and solve problems together. And it's it's been fun, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think we, we have to sort of just put some context around Nigeria. Nigeria, my best description of Nigeria, going to Nigeria for the first time last year, having spent a bit of time in East African countries, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a sort of conflation of Brazil and the United States in one place. It's like the country that, I mean, all the, all the music's coming out of Nigeria, yeah. the entrepreneurial yeah. spirit. It's an amazing engine for innovation in Africa. And yes. actually the scene around uh, data science there is very big. There's data science Nigeria. Yes. There's a large tech scene in Lagos. Uh, Abuja itself, which just for yes. some context is the capital, but it was a new city built in the 1970s. It's just this extraordinary city with these massive ministries, Precisely. like a city of the future. Yeah. And But there's an enormous amount. What we saw when we did the workshops in Nigeria for Data Science Africa was just how mature the ecosystem is around many of these areas. And, you know, I think we're, we're going to see a talk from um, one of the speakers there, whose name escapes me for the moment. His ecosystem around data that he was producing was one of the most advanced talks I'd seen for data ecosystems anywhere in the world, I would cool. say. Yeah. So the Nigerian scene is, is, is pretty big. It is. You know, for a start, we have a population of over 180 million. And um, a good number of these um, the people in Nigeria are, are youths. So we have a large workforce. And so the competition is quite high. You know, even in our universities, for example, you know, you, you get to um, undergraduate students, you go to public or even a private school, and you think you're smart, but there are 10, 30, a lot, I mean, 
there are many of you in the class. So there's usually this high competition among the students and people want to innovate. So even in the informal sector, maybe for, for example, the music industry, you have, you, you've seen lots of music coming out, especially in Lagos, actually. Yeah. It's really a cool place to be. I'm, I'm not trying to advertise my country, but, but that's what it, it is. is. <laughs> what, what was amazing, what was so nice for me was to stay there. You gave us accommodation near the yeah. university and I was staying there with all the East Africans and I yeah. was seeing Nigeria yeah. for the first time. But the East Africans from Kenya and Uganda were also seeing Nigeria yeah. And seeing it through their eyes for yeah. me was also sort of super interesting. Absolutely. Um, you know, my, um, to have a slight digression, right? My first um, DSA was in 2017. Okay, so at that time, it got, was Arusha. So we got there, it was really cool. Tanzania. Tanzania. Yeah. And the presentations were awesome. So I just said to myself, well, I think it's been nice. I think the, the idea of DSA would really be cool in West Africa. Yeah, you know, yeah. we have also a lot of people who are really driven in science and who, who have really done some really great work. So we can have this synergy between people in the West African region and people in the East African region, which is predominantly one of the reasons why we pushed towards having um, the first um, DSA West Africa in, in Nigeria. And the turnout was amazing. You know, we had to look at the, um, the people who, who had applied and of course, you, you would expect a lot of them were Nigerians, you know. And mind you, we had um, a test just to pick the people who we think would were qualified enough for, for, for to, to, to attend. And a lot of them actually did very well. So we had this problem of deciding, okay, so what, what quota should we give to the Nigerian participants and what quota should, should we give to the people within the African, um, the West African region? Of course, we had to get people from from East Africa, so it's it's just, it was it's, it's, it's a difficult. Yeah, it was a difficult balance. Because and but that's actually where I think the fact that we've also got Indabarex going on, yeah. there's Data Science Nigeria, yeah. um, is really helping uh, to do things. One of the things I love seeing at DSA is people meeting, like as you said, Charles, yeah. you were there in Arusha, 2017. Yeah. You were the main driving force between bringing DSA uh, into West Africa, and there's going to be a Ghanaian DSA yeah, yeah. in October. Yeah. Uh, so there's now two a year, one yeah. in West Africa, one in East Africa. Yeah. But we're seeing people moving between the two, yeah. building personal relationships, yeah. sharing problem sets. And for me, that's one of the most interesting things that Data Science Africa and Indaba and Indaba X. X. Yeah. are doing and also michael i mean what's the next step how do we build on this and, and why is it i mean was this happening before or what's causing this to happen now actually the one of the main reason why uh, this is not happening before this time is uh people are working in their own ways and most of the uh, the time i mean people prefer to learn from the uh, from the westerners so that majority of the researchers, they are not on our continent. So we have to have the ways to bring these things to, uh, to the Africa. We have to bring these things to the Africa so that we can collaborate the West Africa with that of the East Africa. And uh, all the, we need to have some ways to synchronize and bring these things to be more than that we think. So uh, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, we didn't start these things uh, before. I think uh, Charles had something to add on uh, this okay. one. I think um, to add to what he said, one of the driving force was um, this huge acceptance 
um, in AI machine learning is the fact that the world is a bit more globalized now. It's a small village. And we have these telecom companies coming into Africa, giving us more sort of cheaper communication. So the average person in Nigeria has a mobile phone, okay? And it's either Android or iOS and has access to the internet. So it's very easy for a student to just look up stuff from Google, YouTube, and just try to learn, you know? And if it becomes difficult, you have this smaller ecosystem of um, learning centers where the students can get better ideas. So I think the, drive, the main driving force is the fact that peop more people now have internet access, and, and that has really, really helped in learning. Driving even those people without degrees, with only yes, secondary yes, school yes, education, yes, exactly. to start to find out exactly. about things. Exactly. Actually, if you're in a secondary school and you're yeah. in a class of 45, you may be really bright, you just may yeah. not be loud enough. Exactly. Exactly. Never to be noticed. And maybe yeah. 45 is a small class. And another thing that I think is, is incredibly important, and I'm curious about, from both of you about how we think of this, what I see in African application, for me, I find them very inspiring. Most of my thinking about the directions of my research have come from, as you start seeing the end-to-end -end pipeline, where the real challenges are. If you just see that the data's come in the door, landed on your desk, yeah, yeah. in your computer, and you're fitting a model, then, you know, I think, well, let's do that by auto ML. Yeah. I mean, the real challenge is you're talking about yeah. active learning, specific domain-specific speech yeah. are really only there when you're responsible for the whole pipeline. But one of my concerns is that the difficulty of those challenges and the intellectual contributions that are being made is not properly recognized by the more Western-orientated publication outlets and conferences. So, so how is that something that can be addressed? And by the way, I think that's a massive problem for machine learning and AI in the West, that, that the real, also there, the real work is in these spaces. It's just people don't see it because they don't see the pipeline. So how do we address that? How do we, how do we get more acknowledgement for this building of the pipeline? The papers are great. You know, it, it, it would be cool to have these presence in large conferences to, to talk about uh, what people in Africa are doing. But I, I think it would speak volume if we sort of bring up products from the research that we do and products address the local problems that we have. Okay, it speaks volume than going to some high-end um, conference, give a talk, present a paper, yeah. And then it stays that way, yeah. you know. But if we can use it to solve our local problems, then, I mean, my niece would say, okay, well, I think Charles did this. Okay, I think he was working on um, this project at some point, and he might even have interest, okay? He or she might even have interest in the outcome of my research, and so also all the people, all the young people within, within the society. So the, the papers are great, but as long as we try, when we try um, to solve tailored um, problems that are localized within Africa, like what he is doing, for example, with the language modeling. I mean, one of the things that is consistent at DSA is people coming in and they want to get access to data in the country. And one of the things the poor organizers having to constantly do is organize SIM cards. Also, Michael, if you were organizing me letters to get my visa, um, trying to, just these things that need to be done when you're organizing a workshop here. How much of your time has it taken to organize just this five-day meeting? Honestly speaking, I mean, while I'm doing this, rearranging the stuff for the DSA, there are something that we are dependent on. So having that as it is, 
it's not that much difficult to or um, to handle these things. But uh, the problem that we have is most of the times, um, I mean, different question may come from different people in different ways. So yeah. that you may dip into some routine stuff uh, which restricts you from doing the actual stuff. So yeah. when you are doing these things, I mean, you may miss some of the important things. So we have to find an alternate options which allow us to further ahead these things to happen. Yeah, so a lot of the organization ends up being about worrying about if certain things aren't working, how to drive forward, which is something that I think, um, I, certainly before I started coming and doing DSA, I, I think it's hard for people to understand. People in Africa aren't constantly worrying about dying from malaria or typhoid or things like this. That's not the problem. The problem is really with the day-to-day things that don't quite fully work. The additional burden that that puts on in just getting anything going. But it does lead to this wonderful capability of just being very relaxed when things go wrong and very quickly coming together with a new solution, a very adaptable society, which I love. As you know, I mean, in Ethiopia, everyone is all, uh, everyone will come. We are in a society like really are dynamic uh, in order to, uh, uh, to do whatever the stuff uh, they have. So that we are working on that kind of environment. And I think we are so, so, so sociable so that as long as you communicate, anyone, they can provide you uh, whatever the thing that you are looking for, uh, um, wherever you go. To add to what you said, just, I think to just generalize the, the whole thing, I want to believe that in Africa, we have the same problems as, to, as people in the West. It's just that we have a lot more constraints. Yeah. Than, than people from the West. For example, you could, we're trying to organize a, a conference and we have to worry about light yeah. um, and, and some of the issues, apart from the underlying issues of organizing the event. So yeah. that, that, that's the good thing, really. So I, I want to believe, uh, and we are resilient because we always, always look for these solutions. And, and that is what people out there should know about. Yes. You know? and, and you know what I love about that? is that type of resilience and that type of innovative creativeness is exactly what's needed when deploying these systems in new areas. People don't know how to write end-to-end machine learning systems that are data-driven. And it's a chaotic world, and you need that time of creativity and resilience and persistence to deliver these things. Precisely. Um, So the difficulties that we face, that we would face here, I think there are a lot more. For example, I say I'm, I'm training a large model after doing the collection and all that, and I get to worry about, okay, so I need to optimize my code to run faster because I only have maybe five hours or eight hours of electricity, okay? Now, I wouldn't have to worry about that if I was out of the African context where there's constant electricity. I can just just put it there and just go to sleep, you know? So, like I said, the problems are the same, but we just have to deal with more constraints to solve our own problems. And... So constraints can breed creativity, but they also, they act as like a tax, as like a friction on the capability. Precisely. As I've already said, I mean, the problem is not only for Ethiopia. It's, uh, as Charles said, uh, it exists all over the, the, uh, the continents. Having a problem is one thing. Let alone that, as it is, uh, we have to always be dynamic in order to find a solution for, yeah. for the kid that we face. So we don't have to let things to go as the result of having a problem. For me, it's a fascinating place to do machine learning. And I personally think you guys are really lucky to have this sort of wealth of applications, which is why I keep coming here. I'd like to thank you both very much. 
for uh, sitting down and talking with us. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Michael Malese and Charles Saidu. That's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. <laughs>